So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to a fresh, brand spanking new episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Yeah. Here we are. It is autumn 2020 when you and I are having this conversation, David. It's uh, whatever. It's mid-October. We're right smack dab in the middle of October. I got leaves in my driveway. Yeah. Uh, You know, colors out there. The uh, air is crisp and clean. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's some beautiful changing of the leaves here now in um, parts of Nashville that uh, we're starting to see. I'm, um, you know, looking out uh, into the, um, I, I live downtown, so there's not a tree for, you know, a, a little while, but mm-hmm. we have these uh, Japanese uh, maples and we have some other maple trees planted along the Oh, those road. ones that just turn a deep, yeah, color, like a purplish, red, crimsonish, yeah. red, yeah. deep color, and um, and they look really nice, just kind of lining the the street mm-hmm. where my building is, and and you can kind of look out and you know see a, a branch with some color, and it, it's it falls my favorite time. It doesn't last long enough for me, but it's really like my favorite season, I think. So yeah. Yeah, and I don't know. It, to me, it's kind of like bittersweet this autumn uh, mm-hmm. because now we're facing winter. I'm confronted every morning these days with uh, headlines about the resurgence of the COVID-19 mm-hmm. virus. Now it seems to be that infections are up. Uh, mm-hmm. We're heading into into winter when we're going to be I don't know. We're going back into cold storage, back into quarantine. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to winter at all. And the shorter days are not um, real friendly uh, to many of us uh, either, you know. Um, and and something about being uh, quarantined in the dark <laughs> for a long time <laughs> is really a hard sell. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I laugh because it's just like, Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you know, I don't know. I've thought about, um, you know, if I even need to, uh, plan to, to, uh, to, move my, my work back to home and do telehealth again for a while. Uh, Nashville has seen a little bit of a spike again and they're anticipating a bit more of that. And, uh, ironically, uh, you know, whenever we open bars and music venues and restaurants, um, for some reason we have this spike, 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Being a town of tourism, I was downtown and um, the party barges and the pedal bars that run up and down Broadway. Um, I was just driving across Broadway uh, on on Saturday and it was lined up. People lined up to get in bars and people lined up to get in places and um, wow. no mask, no distance. People hanging off the backs of these, you know, for those of you that aren't in Nashville, party barge is really just a, a pickup truck with liquor. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and people sitting in the back of it <laughs> with a yeah, lot of music. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, and how they insure those things, I still don't know. But anyway, um, the, uh, the, the climate was very uh, cavalier, uh, in my opinion. And I didn't like it very much because I thought, you know, you guys are going to, come in and, and you're going to spread this around and, and you're going to do your thing. And then we're going to sit here, those of us that live here and, you know, hole up this winter and be, uh, alone in the dark for months because we, uh, can't get out. So I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just bitching, but, um, it, it is, it's, it's a real deal. So, you know, I was talking with our friend KK last week and, uh, she had heard from, somewhat, gosh, I forget who, uh, somebody has noticed there's kind of this phenomenon that, you know, we can kind of tough it out uh, facing uh, a challenge like the pandemic. Mm-hmm. We can kind of buckle down and tough it out for about six months. Yeah. And then we freaking hit a wall. Yeah. The six month wall. Yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah, I, I feel like it's going to be crucially important. I'm going to have to be so much more intentional, I think, in this next season until we can get through the thing. Yeah. I'm paying attention to uh, to positive sobriety. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I am going to have to, and Allie are going to have to find ways to somehow maintain social connection uh, to do those things that feed the heart and feed the soul to kind of uh, not to leave those yawning open chasms that addiction is just, just poised and waiting, uh, mm-hmm. to rush in and fill again. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, uh, I, I just tell people all the time, it, it's an era right now, uh, where it's more important than ever to do the things that empower you. That, that mm-hmm. allow you to feel empowered so it doesn't just feel like life is happening to you. You know, make the choices you can make, you know, change the things you can, so to speak. And uh, uh, and because those things are, are going to empower us so that we don't feel like we're just uh, victims of, um, you know, of what has befallen us. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, as much as we can feel empowered, I'm, I'm with you. And I've got to do a better job of self-care on the intentional side as well, uh, because that is, to me, the the, the root of um, uh, staying sober and not just dry, you know? Right, yeah, so. yeah. One of the things that I'm doing is uh, – cultivating i've never been super good at cultivating hobbies mm-hmm. at least not hobbies i was willing to tell anybody else about uh, I, I i did have some rather expensive time-consuming hobby yeah. uh, past times but uh i decided you know that it's high time uh, now that i have so much time on my hands to actually do something I always wanted to do, which is learn how to play the guitar. Uh, 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had a little uh, nylon string uh, youth beginner guitar that Allie picked up at a yard sale a couple years ago that I've plunked away on for a a few weeks, uh, practicing a few minutes each day. And then last week, Allie bought me a guitar. She bought me a nicer guitar with, you know, steel strings, plays easier. I'm not as terrible on that as I was on the other one. You don't have the deep, Uh, the deep frets that (laughs) (laughs) like playing an auto harp or something. (laughs) And it'll actually stay in tune, which is, you know, it's kind of a novel thing. Yeah. Uh, But I'm, I, you know, I'm like a, I'm like a 15 year old here now in my bedroom, you know, stealing away a little bit of time uh, each day to play with that. And you know what? There is, it's, it's absorbing. It's challenging. Here's the thing about a good uh, hobby. It needs to be challenging enough that it's pushing you, but not so hard that it discourages you. You got to be able to see some progress, mm-hmm. you know, and I seem to have found that with yeah. the guitar. Yeah, that's, that's great. That is really great because, um, yeah, it's, it, it, you know, you don't want to, uh, rob yourself of the joy of uh, of the process by trying to turn it into a profession or something. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I am not destined for the stage. I'm not Henry. I, I told Allie, you know, by spring I'll be able to play Old MacDonald and I'll be happy. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. To me, that's. Uh, I would say that right now, aside from. Oh, and the other thing we got is we got a damn dog. Did I tell you we got a dog? Oh, no, I didn't know. Well, yeah, I did know, but I don't think yeah. we talked about the dog. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah my- <laughs> the, the damn dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my, my daughter, who as she is, I don't know how she attracts uh, lost, uh, abandoned pets, uh-huh. How they find her? I don't know. She's on a pet directory somewhere in the animal kingdom, <laughs> but but uh, they know how to find Kristen. Uh-huh. I mean, we were on we were on vacation in the hills of Western North Carolina last last week, and two dogs showed up at the door. I mean, because oh. she was there. Uh-huh, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah, but now about a month ago, uh, she called to say that yet another dog had found its way to her house, and she has two dogs and five cats and three kids and God knows what else, chickens uh-huh. and everything. Yeah. Um, and she wondered whether we would babysit the dog for the weekend while she went out of town, just for the weekend, and she's going to find a home for it. Mm-hmm. That was brilliant. <laughs> that was brilliant because, because uh, by Sunday she was our dog. Oh yeah, sweet little pup. About a year old, we think. Uh-huh. Daisy. Oh my! Uh, and I've been taking Daisy out for walks, and then we've gone out to the park and and let her run. And I had sworn off pets, David. Uh-huh. You know, when Allie and I looked at each other when the last dog was on its way out, we said, "We're done." You know, no yeah. more pets. That's too much responsibility. Um, we're yeah. done. Yeah. And uh, so, you know what? I'm glad we've got the dog. I really am. I think that I think that Daisy is a part of my ongoing positive sobriety. So between Daisy and the guitar and Allie and being able to talk with other recovering addicts throughout the day, uh, as much as I dread the coming winter, I am optimistic that 
I'm going to be carried through with my sobriety intact. We're going to find some joy yeah. in the darkness. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, I think that pet idea is actually, yeah, that's, that's great. Daisy will keep you um, engaged and distracted and in, in yeah. good, in good, healthy ways. I know my dog, you know, as much as I, complain about her at times. Um, she is, you know, she's, she's the thing that gets me up and moving every morning because it has to, you know, right, mean, like, right, right. you right. know, six o'clock, she's standing at the door going, Hey, you, she's ready to have a movement. <laughs> That's, so right. Move. That's right. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, off we go. And, uh, you know, when are you bundle up and out you go for the first time in the morning uh, freezing mm-hmm. yourself to death but they're great yeah. they you know they're companions they're loyal and um and nobody will be any kinder to you all day than than your dog so yeah 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 all right well hey we do have a guest this week we do uh, we have a, a we have a positive sobriety first this week actually okay. and the the listener can uh connect the dots when they uh continue to to hear about it but yeah it's a a very unique guest okay we're not going to tell you any more than that you got to stick around and listen to find out what we have brought to you this week on the positive sobriety podcast Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And David, today you have brought us a fascinating guest all the way from the Pacific Northwest, a guy with quite a story and uh, quite quite a mission. Yeah. Why don't you introduce our guest, please? Absolutely. We are really, really happy to have Dr. Hal Bradley with us today. And uh, Dr. Bradley is the author of a book called Crisis Victory. And um, uh, Dr. Bradley wears a lot of hats. Um, he is a pastor, a um, a uh, chaplain to homeless uh, people where he works uh, pretty uh, extensively. Uh, he works with people with uh, feelings of uh, helplessness and addiction and uh, I'm, I'm sure in this, uh, era of, <laughs> of culture and, and life, he's not short for, uh, business and those that are feeling helpless and, and, um, addicted and, uh, yeah. at, at, at odds with, with, uh, real life. But, um, Dr. Bradley also has the, uh, distinction of being our first uh former drug lord on the on the podcast (laughs) so um you know this is interesting because um he is working with people in an area that he uh, at one point in his life um uh supported i guess and and so dr bradley welcome i don't want to tell your story i want you to tell your story but welcome to the podcast and thank you for uh joining us today well, thank you so much, David, and it's a real privilege and a pleasure to be with you and Nathan this morning, and I've uh, been very much looking forward to this uh, conversation that we're about to share today and get into. So thank you both, well, gentlemen. God bless you. Absolutely. Yeah. Likewise. Uh, well, Dr. Bradley, we uh, we like our listeners to get to know our guests on a personal level, and there's kind of this opening question that's become yes. uh, common on the program. We say, what is the long and winding road that brought you uh, into the line of work, the endeavor, the ministry, what it is you're doing today. Can you give us uh, kind of a quick backstory? I can, and thank you for asking. 
I would say that this story begins in 1969. Uh, I was a young kid growing up and I was in high school in Edmonds, Washington. I was in the bathroom with two friends and got caught smoking a cigarette. And back in 1969, they removed you from school for a semester for an action such as that. My parents, oh, wow. thought, it might, yeah, my parents thought it might be a good idea for me not walking around the streets and getting in more trouble. So they had a friend that owned a mining corporation down in Durango, Mexico. So they sent me down there and I ended up spending about a year and a half of my life down there. And unbeknownst to my family and in my innocence, I was in, in an area that was controlled by a cartel family. Uh, I would used to ride my burrow, which was my only form of transportation in those years down there along the poppy fields and would uh, get to know the Chihuahua Indians that grew the marijuana up in the mountains and would watch them at harvest time, literally roll them up in burlap bags and tie them on the backs of burrows and take them down the canyons for uh, dump trucks that would be picking up the harvest to take and process into kilos. So my actual exposure to the cartel and the cartel way of life began uh, at the age of 15. At the age wow. of Yeah, it was an amazing journey, gentlemen. And by the age of 16, my brother had been wounded in action in Vietnam. So I came back to the United States, went to Edmonds Community College to get a GI Bill. And two weeks after I was 17 years old, I was enlisted in the United States Army. I uh, served overseas from 71 to 74 and discharged under honorable conditions. So I went to college in Sacramento, and at that time uh, of a school break, I decided to go down to Durango and visit some of the people in the village that I had lived for a year and a half at. Unfortunately, that was probably uh, a turning point decision in my life that I should not have pursued, but nonetheless, I did. And as a result of that decision, I ended up smuggling for that family for well over a decade, ultimately mm, starting wow. to started developing uh, safe houses, distribution sites in the United States. And then in, in the late 70s, early 80s, the cocaine industry came into, uh, came into play from South America. And the cartels in the region I was working at were uh, moving an extensive amount. By then, I had purchased an airplane. I was doing flights in and out of uh, northern Mexico through the Sonora deserts and started uh, moving a quarter to a third of a ton of cocaine a month up in the Pacific Northwest. In 1991, a joint task force formed by the Department of Justice and various agencies under their umbrella decided to go after me. I was the largest uh, trafficker in cocaine in this part of the world during that time. And uh, I had affiliations with the Sinaloa drug cartel. Actually had met El Chapo a couple times, sat down with him with regard to the market interests that he had in the Canadian provinces above Seattle. Uh, At one point, yeah, it was amazing, brothers. And at one point, uh, I had made the decision to remove myself from that world. I had a wife and a couple of young kids. I had several businesses. I was extremely successful in all aspects of my life. But I'd made a turning point decision to not put my family through that. So I went down to Culiacan, Sinaloa, sat down at the table of the bosses, said that I would connect them with my organization up here in return for my freedom. They were saying that I owed them a $450,000 debt, which of course I didn't, but this is typical cartel control play. So I put together 450,000 bucks, had it put in a car and drove it to them. And then I flew down there and I got hugs and congratulations and all kinds of wonderful things from the organization that I was working with. 
by the time I returned back home, I had 350 kilos and two cartel soldiers sitting in my driveway. As a boss, I knew that I had the authority to turn the load around, so I let him know we were heated up, get it the heck out of here. And the very next day, I walked into the U.S. Attorney's office. And I'd like to make a clear point here. I was never placed under arrest. I didn't go run around, squeal on all my friends to make a deal with the feds. When I walked in, I had a specific target and that I was going after because of death threats to my family. And uh, whenever you're threatened, you just get the bigger baseball bat. And I knew the federal government would be able to accomplish that for me. Well, wow. because because I wasn't some rat or snitch, once I entered the, prisons, uh, the prison system, the federal system, Upon my release, I was approached to become what they call a contractor for the Department of Justice. And I did spend 17 years working almost all of it outside of the United States in covert undercover operations, infiltrating various cartels and taking down some extremely dangerous principal targets. Uh, mm. As recently as June of this year, I had a kill order, I had a kill order put on me and uh, I, was, uh, I was assassinated June 7th of this year. I, I was dead and somehow it did revive and I'm still in recovery process, but all is well. Uh, in the 19 years that I've been working with the homeless and destitute through my ministry, I'm now reconnected and plugged back in with them as efficiently as I possibly can be uh, regarding the pandemic that we are currently uh, going through. So that's wow. a brief synopsis of who I am, what I came from. Uh, my journey while I was in federal prison was amazing, Dave, Nathan, I was able to calm my lifestyle down tremendously. I entered seminarial studies. Uh, I graduated in there and uh, became a certified hospice counselor. My job in federal prison at that time for two and a half years was to take prisoners through the dying process. And during mm. the time that I was working with them, I was also cramming and doing my studies. So it really gave me a humbling effect. And the last year they transferred me to Leavenworth Federal Prison in Kansas. I worked in the education department there, helping people get their GEDs and also plugged in with Hospice 11, where had them come in the prison and we started training uh, inmates in the art of caregiving for other people and getting them certified in that industry. And I was uh, on TV interviews. I was in newspapers. I got a lot of exposure at that time in my life for the work we were doing to the extent mm. that the last day I was in Leavenworth, they took me into the basement where there were several hundred prisoners, people from outside, staff. They threw a going away party for Pastor Bradley because they had a winter going back out to the world. And it was absolutely an amazing experience. And the only time that's ever been done in the history of Leavenworth Federal Prison. Wow. Yeah. Dr. Bradley, you, you kind of just <laughs> skipped over this part about being assassinated. Um, can I go back to that just for one second? Yes, you can. Um, how do you find out that there's a, a, a contract out on you or whatever that? Well, I had a, uh, I've, I've had a contract put on my life. And uh, what this is called, and uh, growing up in the cartels, I've been around quite a bit of that type of thing. And it's called a kill order. And mm -hmm. this is where a decision is made at a higher level to take out a person. There was one made on me, and uh, they finally located me up here in June of this year. And were able to hit me in my driveway out and back. And as he was, I was stabbed multiple times in the head and I was bleeding out profusely. That's what, uh, where I lost consciousness. But in the last death blow that he gave me, uh, he stabbed me right in the brain at the top of the, at just above the base of the skull. 
And as I was dying, I knew I was dying. And uh, I found a real peace in that. Once I had actually accepted the the dying decision, Mm -hmm. I I went ahead and faded away. And kind of like Lazarus, gentlemen, I was raised up from the dead about 45 to 50 minutes of bleeding out out there. I was Mm -hmm. able to to crawl up the stairs, get behind my security gate. My son 911 did in. And uh, the police and ambulances got here and they uh, were transfusing me with, with blood instantly in the ambulance, getting me to the hospital. And I was in and out, but they, they knew that it was a kill order because they knew of my past experiences and my deep involvement for almost two decades here in the, uh, in the community. Wow. Wow. And so what happens in prison to you that um, shifts you from uh, coming in with um, the the background that you had and what you'd been doing into deciding that um, helping uh, dying patients and hospice work and all of that is how you want to invest yourself. What um, w- what was your experience? That's a very good question. What had happened was I was in a federal prison in Colorado and my liver started shutting down. I was listed as a terminally ill patient and transferred to Springfield Medical Center where I was uh, offered volunteer drugs to transform the liver and try to save my life. And of course, obviously they worked. I've been out of prison 21 years and the uh, experience was amazing because as I was going through my own self Term, uh, terminally ill process, I had an opportunity to join hospice there in the prison to work with dying prisoners. And there were only 11 of us that were picked and selected to become hospice counselors. Mm. So uh, I did a three-month course in there, and then immediately I was juggling between two and three dying patients daily. And in my Bible, I have 24 names listed, time, date, and moment of death and cause of death, and still remember every one of them. But I've been a hospice chaplain now for 19 years since that experience. So prison was beneficial because I took the time to uh, work in my educational studies. Uh, I was afforded a job in the education department to help other people through it. And it worked all the way up to my master's level. I uh, went on my doctoral process in 2000 and completed my doctorate in April of 2004. Are we still there? Yes. Yep. Yeah. 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 My screen yep. just went blank. I just want to make sure. Um, we still got yeah, you. so I've had a doctorate since 04, and my doctorate is in pastoral counseling. So I actually <laughs> work with other pastors in processing how they approach the outreach services ministry, of which I am deeply uh, entrusted to. Yeah. Yeah. So these days you work a lot, I understand, with the homeless and the indigent in Seattle. Is that true? I do. I do. It's in actually in Snohomish County. I'm 26 miles north of Seattle. I, mm-hmm. I work the uh, homeless camps along the riverbanks, out in the flats, uh, some that are community-based. Up until about seven or eight months ago, I was fairly active in it, but unfortunately, the pandemic has struck us. And uh, as a hospice chaplain, I uh, am very used to going to Providence Hospital or other hospitals in my immediate region and doing last right services and then continuing with the grieving families as their, you know, their loved one uh, ceases to exist. And all of that has now changed because you can't go bedside anymore because of the pandemic. And it's really uh, it's a real struggle working with people going through a grief conflict based on what they deal with, not being able to be with that which they love, that person they love. And 
Uh, mm-hmm. Every everything about isolation and separatism is uh, empowering, if you will. A lot of negativity and depression, expanded mm-hmm. drug use and abuse, uh, uh, domestic abuse in residences. So we're we're getting into another phase of this type of ministry in the outreach services. You okay. Know? Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of wondering whether in this season of COVID, whether uh, uh, depression, suicide, drug use, domestic violence are taking maybe taking more lives than the virus itself. Any thoughts on that? I I can't disagree with that. I don't think we have current statistics that can really uh, survey that and balance that, although I have seen some statistical information. I can only go on what I see and hear through people that I stay in touch with. And I know uh, even law enforcement friends of mine that are on the uh, the police force, we we discuss some of these uh, actions. And there is a heightened elevation in suicide right now. And there is a heightened elevation in uh, domestic violence, uh, criminal actions, because the jails are at such an overloaded point. And with the pandemic and the separation of inmates, a lot of people are not being put in jail for various crimes that are considered, uh, let's say, a misdemeanor level offense. As mm-hmm. a result of that, we have a recurrence of uh, criminal activity that is, it's almost like it's running rampant. It's just amazing the change that I've seen. And I can't even imagine at this point in time what a lot of the camps are, are like down there along the river. I've spent so many years working in them and I have seen serious abuse down there. And I can only imagine how much more heightened that it is today. Uh, I've also like to add at this point that I've been a volunteer emergency services chaplain for the Salvation Army here in my area. Up until two years ago, I would be on call for critical cases that would end up down there uh, that we would Mm -hmm. have to end with. And these are, uh, you know, you're a sobriety organization here. These are primarily alcohol and hard narcotic afflicted people that have literally lost control of their lives and they seek out anything that can try to bring them back to a transparency, if you will, of that, which they know they should be. So, you know, we're also dealing with a lot of self guilt issues and low esteem issues and trying, trying to recover them through example, gentlemen, we call ourselves Christians because we are Christians. And the reason people know that we're Christians is they see the love that we give them to an absolute stranger. We don't step over them. We sit down beside them. We don't, we don't knock them down. We lift them up. We show the love of God through our activity. Because you, you can't walk into a camp with a bunch of people that don't want to be beat to death with the Bible. So what you do is you show them the lifestyle of, of what makes us the Christians that we are. Right. And this is my approach to the many people that up until this last year I've been able to go and be with. And also, I would like to say that a lot of the intent of going into the uh, environment of the homeless and destitute is to do wellness checks. Uh, a lot mm. of them are uh, not only in non-recovery status, but they become afflicted with diseases like abscesses or possibly venereal diseases. Or uh, I carry Narcam kits to work with overdose patients that would uh, be overdosed. I can't account the amount of times I've taken people to the emergency room or had rape victims dropped off at my own front door here at two or three in the morning. And, you know, they won't take them to a hospital because they have felony convictions. They're addicted to heroin and they don't want to get thrown in jail and go through withdrawal. So they look for other alternatives. 
And the people that know me so well in this community know that I'm going to be there to serve them as God serves us. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Dr. Bradley, I want to talk about crisis victory, but um, real quick, do you, um, and maybe this is a too random a question, but I'm hearing you talk about um, working with the government and drug laws and, um, you know, the thoughts we have about um, uh, criminalization and stigma in our society about um, drug laws. Do you have any opinions that you feel free to share about how our culture is treating um, those that are uh, finding themselves in addiction and um, and in the prison system and what that's looking like and and are we doing are we doing the best thing we can do well that's a that's a good question what I found in my years I was sentenced eight years in federal prison and I did about six of them and then I was approached to become a contractor, so they got me out a couple of years early, took me up before a judge, and almost immediately I was down in Central America operational with teams. So my, my feeling is uh, I think that the uh, task force that are community-based uh, that working in the narcotics industries are being trained and processed and starting to show a lot more compassion and a lot less violence towards the uh the people that they come into contact with when they execute a search warrant or they pull somebody over, they approach with caution, of course. But mm-hmm. because of the, the trend of how p- the police are being looked at, I do know that they take this into account measure and they're using a lot more compassion in their, in their work. As we all struggle with uh, the separation and the division that we see being created currently in our country, we are at a critical crisis, and my book, Crisis Victory, of course, covers many, many aspects of crisis events and how to navigate through them and come out successfully on the other end. I yeah. truly encourage people to read the book. It's an amazing story and a yeah. good guideline for surviving such events. Yeah. But uh, the prison systems, they do have education departments. They do have various programs that can come in and enter into the prison mainstream and work with those that have a true interest. But a lot of people in prison, to be perfectly frank, will find Jesus in the moment and they leave prison and they find a, a needle as soon as they walk out the door. And this is sad and unfortunate, but this is yeah. the reality of that world. And right. I, uh, yeah. Well, let's talk about the book, um, Crisis Victory. How did you uh, come to the conclusion that this uh, story needed to be told and this was the book you needed to write? That is just an amazing question. Over 30 years ago, when I had walked in to take down the cartel that was coming after my family to keep me in that business, I started taking notes and passages and memoirs and I ended up with almost 300 documented pages of work and everything that I share with you I have documentation newspaper clips letters from the Department of Justice as I'm taking off on another mission on and on and on but I I felt that at that time I wanted to do an autobiography but when I met with Andrea Albright the publisher of Beverly Hills Publications who is handling this project and Nicole Rodriguez her media consultant they introduced me to the concept of turning this into a guideline, uh, in essence, to aid and assist people in whatever type of crisis event they might find themselves cast into and how to successfully navigate it through it. So there's 30 years of work that has been compiled to put together a crisis victory. 
And I am extremely proud of the way that my team with Beverly Hills Publications and with NRPR through Nicole Rodriguez, how we've been able to compile what I believe to be a masterpiece on showing and directing people in proper procedure to survive whatever event, and especially during this time, multiple crisis events that we are seeing people encountered with. Mm. It's absolutely amazing as to its benefit to our community and our benefit to people that are an example, Nathan and David, would be people that have just hit a financial collapse. All of a sudden, they've lost their home and they find themselves in a homeless community. And never in their entire lives have they been exposed to such an event. Well, this is called a crisis event, life mm -hmm. transformation in a negative way. So what we do through the book is reveal to them passages that can return them in the shortest possible time and the safest possible way back to a life of normalcy where they have their comfort zone uh, mm -hmm. endorsed. Well, what's, a, what's the first mistake that most of us make when we encounter a crisis? The very first mistake almost everyone makes that isn't trained is panic. They go into a fight or flight mode. They don't understand what has just been confronted to them. And they have not been guided as to how to approach it calmly, selectively, to remove all the obstacles of other inner thoughts that are processing at the same time. The cortisone level of the body, the adrenaline levels of the body become amplified as a result of the emotional reaction to the crisis event. What we do in this book is we uh, teach them how to immediately eliminate that focus down in solidarity to the immediate crisis itself at hand and how to navigate through that crisis. Mm. And, and so um, helping people understand that, um, that their crisis could be rooted in trauma, is, is that part of what I'm hearing you say, Dr. Bradley? I would say that is definitely a part of it, but that is certainly not all of it. A crisis mm -hmm. event can be uh, all of a sudden you're experiencing the death of a loved one, which is something I'm very familiar with dealing with. And how do you overcome grief and remove uh, the emotional uh, potential impulses and responses to that current event that could even accelerate the uh, crisis that you're enduring in that moment? What we try to do is we try to show them early on in the book's writings how to approach any stage scenario that can de-escalate instead of amplify the event that they find themselves confronted with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how would people struggling with addiction find your book helpful? absolutely helpful. I actually have a chapter that's uh, in involving substance abuse. But what's critical about this book is regardless of the event that they find themselves confronted with, everything of that stage is amplified because people have self-esteem issues, guilt issues. They are compounded by the way that society in general looks at them. We are all recovering addicts. I'm 40 years clean now. You guys, I understand, have been through a journey yourselves in your own right. So we understand the philosophy of how we degraded ourselves and how we knew that societally we were being observed. So what we do in this book is show them how to immediately process and eliminate this type of an interaction upon themselves where they base themselves and show them right from the start how to focus down on the immediate circumstance you find yourself confronted with, how to narrow off all the sidelining distractions, if you will, and to process immediately, immediately, gentlemen, how you take yourself out of the foxhole 
and you remove yourself from the den and you come on up into the sunlight. And I think that uh, working with uh, Andrea and Nicole, they were able to accomplish this with the information that we all put together for this book. And I, I sincerely hope that you two gentlemen get a copy of it because it is absolutely amazing. It starts yes. out, it, it does, it starts out with my history of going up in the cartel ranks, how I went from a 15-year-old kid to a drug lord in the United States and the largest one in this part of the world, how I survived it, all the, the hell, if you will, that I went through to get to where I was at the lack of compassion for the addicts out there. I didn't care if I wanted to move a ton of cocaine, I moved a ton of cocaine and didn't give a darn about what it did to the families I destroyed. So you have to understand on the night of October 19th, 1994, when I fell to my knees in that prison cell and told the Lord to take this yoke from me because I couldn't carry it another, another instant. And miraculously, two other prisoners came into my cell, one on each side of me, put a hand on my shoulder and we prayed and we broke those chains and I have never looked back and I have never stopped smiling from the moment I received the injunction and the impartation of the Holy Spirit. Wow. It's absolutely amazing. Mm. And I do have deep compassion for every human being on this planet. Even the man that was sent here to execute me when I was able to come and revive from that, I prayed for him and sent love to him. He's just a soldier that had a name written on a piece of paper. I've been in that world. I understand what that is. Mm -hmm. Wow. But you know, wow. gentlemen, we were only given two commandments by Jesus Christ. And you both know this. One of them is to love God the Father above all things. And the next one is for you and me to love one another. Now, those are easy words to say, but we are all born of a sinful nature. And I believe that the sinful nature can be recovered on a daily uh, reinstallation, if you will, of your faith in Christ. And by doing this, Love manifests within us. And how can you not love every single person you come in and encounter in your life? And like Facebook's a great example. I have 5,000 followers. I've never met any of them. And I truly care about their life. And I answer their prayer requests. And I show by example, brothers, it's by example that we truly are of this, of this uh, seed of recreation as a result of the actions that we produce and formally address when people come to us with a solution-seeking scenario. Crisis victory, in fact, handles all of these scenarios. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, well how, will, how will listeners find a copy of the book? Dr. Okay, uh, I talked to Andre Albright about that yesterday. The book is now in final stage. I edited the last two chapters last night. They are now in the hands of, uh, of uh, Beverly Hills Publications. The book will be released here within a week or two, and it's my understanding that the website will come up at that time. I did an interview yesterday, and uh, they were talking about uh, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, and um, oh, Amazon.com. So keep an eye out on those, but we will post it. And uh, this is Nicole Rodriguez's, uh, that's her field. She does the marketing, and she will have that information out to each and every one of you. And I, mm. I strongly, strongly recommend the book because it, it, it has so many answers to so many questions that so many are confronted with right now, brothers. Absolutely. These are hard days. These are hard days. Yeah, they are, for sure. And, and Dr. Bradley, if people want to contact you directly or uh, learn more about you, how can they do that? Yes, I have a site that's online right now, and it's uh, D-R-H-A-L-Bradley.com. 
uh, com, and uh, it is a site that goes to the media release people that on that site has my information, or they can uh, they can go to uh, Beverly Hills Publications, contact Andrea Albright, and she can direct them to me. She has uh, the information resources as they're building the website right now. Great. And uh, Dr. Bradley, is there anything uh, coming up that we uh, that you're excited about that we should look for or uh, keep our eyes open as well? I know the book is about to be released, but um, are you in the middle of anything else uh, that's that you're excited about before we let you get away? Yes, I'm very excited about the direction that I see people going through these crisis events out here every day. An example would be those that are isolated in their homes. If you notice they're pulling their curtains back and they're knocking on the window and they are reaching out to people walking by. Or you'll see mm. people that are struggling with food hardships and they'll open their front door and they will see a box of food on the door and no message with it. Only somebody sending them that which they need. And that's mm. according to God's glory. And this is very exciting to me because in the worst possible days that our nation has ever been confronted with since World War II, we are seeing an abundance of caring and lifting up and uh, equality that is being distributed from one, uh, from one to another. And I'm very, very proud of my country and happy to see this love being exampled. So that is what I'm looking forward to and watching daily grow. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking time to talk with us, Dr. Bradley. We will uh, look forward to the release of the book, and we'll put the information. Uh, Thank you in the so show very notes. much, guys. I really enjoyed Take talking care. to both of you. God bless you and your families. And Likewise. Nice Thank you so America. much. Thanks, right. guys. Bye-bye. Take care. All right. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And Nate, that is um, that is our first uh, former drug lord turned pastor turned uh, hospice <laughs> chaplain turned author turned, you know, uh, Dr. Bradley, uh, like we said, wears a lot of hats and uh, and wears them well, it sounds like. Um, mm. But um, I was really... Uh, I was challenged by, I guess, um, one of the things I took away from the from his crisis victory was the in, the intentionality um, that uh, that we have to maintain uh, in our personal lives uh, in order to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, I it was weird for me to hear him say that he he'd served time at, at Leavenworth. I actually have a few feet away from me now in my office. I've got an actual ball and chain uh, stamped Leavenworth. It's from Leavenworth Prison. Oh, wow. Uh, It was given to me as a gift. I spoke there a few years ago uh, in the prison. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are skeptical of any prison conversion. Mm -hmm. You know, they all find Jesus, right? Yeah. And, you know, even Dr. Bradley himself admits that it's not at all unusual. In fact, it's all too common mm-hmm. for the inmate to find Jesus while he's there and then find a go back 
and of course, typically we're going to go ahead and blame the addict, mm-hmm. let him take all the blame for it instead of looking at perhaps what uh, social constructs might lead him in this direction. But for whatever reason, when he gets out, uh, having found Jesus, he quickly finds a needle in his back, finds his old friends in his back mm-hmm. in the old life. Mm-hmm. But that isn't always the case. Right. Uh, there are those for whom uh, that experience, that prison experience, turns out to be the thing that saved their life. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 I um, I feel like uh, the work that he's doing right now, especially you know in in COVID conditions, uh, it's got to be challenging and frustrating and uh, all kinds of things. But I I do um, appreciate his reminder to us that we really. Um, you know, have a, a pretty simple charge uh, when it comes to what Jesus commanded, and that's you know, love God and love others. And yeah, um, and sometimes I think we try to get very fancy with that, mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, you know, those things can be just as simple as uh, gosh, you know, taking food to those in need, and and I, you know, I I, I am seeing what he what he talked about in acts of kindness people are demonstrating to others in their lives or around them. Um, Mm. and in this time, I know there's so much, um, division in our, in our country. And, and I know that there's so much, um, uh, you know, uh, either people are buying in or their lack of buying in or whatever, but I, I would love for there to be a, um, an outlet for the, the humanitarian efforts and stories that are coming, um, through people who are sacrificially doing things in this, in this climate to, uh, demonstrate love to other people. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think if we saw that, maybe it would make the rest of some of this crap look a little different. Um, yes. So yeah. I don't know. But I, I appreciated him reminding us of that for sure. I did too. I did too. It's not the stuff that's typically fe- featured on the on the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all about, you know, protests and firebombs and shootings and a lot of hatred. But I too have seen that in this period. It's the same kind of thing that I've seen in the wake of hurricanes, for example, mm-hmm. or earthquakes mm-hmm. when we're together in a crisis. Yeah. 9-11 even. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. Well, uh, uh, time has flown. We're rapidly coming to the end of this week's show. Uh, before we talk about our sponsor, a reminder that we do love to hear from you, and we'd love to hear about your uh, pandemic story, your story of positive sobriety, along with any comments or suggestions that you might have about this guest, this show, or any other. And maybe and an act re- of kindness. Um, yeah, that's, that's been good. Demonstrated, or that you've been able to demonstrate. We'd love to. Maybe we could be that, Nate. The the okay. pipeline for positive. Positive Corona, oh. <laughs> something or other. We'll come up with yeah. it. <laughs> okay, that's a that's a great idea, and we can. Okay, I love it. Okay, uh, so send us your accounts of random acts of kindness, uh, a true, um, you know, demonstrations of love in real form. Send those to positive sobriety podcast at gmail dot com. That's good, well, David. 
Tell us about our sponsor. Well, our sponsor is BetterHelp.com. Try BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com. And that is our online uh, access to uh, online therapy. And uh, you can join about a half million other users of this uh, great service. You don't have to leave home. Uh, it's a 24-hour service. It isn't a crisis hotline, but it is um, an online therapy tool that allows you to have the same therapist every week or every however many times you want to access that um, that opportunity. Um, if you don't feel like you're connecting with the therapist that you have, there's no hard feelings in um, taking on another one. But it's a great opportunity right now for people to uh, take uh, charge of their lives and uh, take uh, control of getting unstuck in some of these areas. And uh, trybetterhelp.com is uh, where you need to go. And when you do that, go to betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety and you'll receive a 10% off uh, on the initial sign up. And also it will allow us to know that uh, the things that we're bringing to you are useful. So uh, betterhelp.com slash positive sobriety. All right. Well, there we have it. Uh, uh, by the way, before we go, uh, a big word of thanks. Again, we don't say this often enough to our uh, peerless engineer, selfless engineer, oh, Rex yeah. Schnelli. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. T takes our random meanderings every week. <laughs> <laughs> turns them into a show yeah it actually pieces yeah. it together and we actually sound like we had something to say <laughs> <laughs> but i'm thrilled and thank you for remembering rex and and thankful that he and deb are now uh covid free again yeah. and um and and much healthier so yeah okay well uh, that's it for this week until next time i'm nate i'm david we're your pals right here on the positive sobriety podcast the Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 